The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. China's long-serving central banker, Zhou Xiaochuan, has stepped down, replaced by Yi Gang. Who is Yi, and what does his appointment mean for Chinese financial reform? What should we make of China's move to attract New York-listed domestic companies to list back at home? And for that matter, how will New York investors view the listing of iQiyi, a sort of Chinese answer to Netflix? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a special Asia-focused edition of our weekly podcast, a conversation between Breaking News columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Quentin Webb, and with me is Pete Sweeney, who's just back from Beijing, where the government has enacted a sweeping series of changes to regulatory agencies and made several changes to the regulators themselves heading these bodies. Hi, Pete. Hello, Quentin. Pete, we have a new man in charge of the Chinese Central Bank, and he is sort of a surprise pick for the job. Who is Yi Gang exactly, and why weren't uh, China watchers in those in the know expecting him to win this race? Well, on the one hand, Yi Gang is you know a very qualified guy, and and he's a you know he's a long term economist. He's been working at the Central Bank for for over a decade now. Um, he's run pretty much every aspect of policy along with Zhou Xiaochuan. Um, so they're kind of this dynamic duo, uh, Zhou Xiaochuan being the outgoing central banker who served for like 15 years. Um, and this dynamic duo has helped navigate in the Chinese economy through the global financial crisis, um, through these massive changes in the, in the Chinese economy. So, you know, if Zhou said, well, you know, I want my number two guy to step into place, you would think, you know, on the face of it that, you know, Beijing would listen. But, you know, over the past couple of years, as people have been looking at who would replace Joe, pretty much everybody was unanimous against Yi Gang. And the reason is this sort of weird xenophobic, I don't want to call it racist thing, but this odd attitude that Chinese people, in particular Chinese government, has towards the sea turtles. Um, this is a term that refers to Chinese people who go study overseas, work overseas, spend a lot of time overseas, this massive diaspora of people who are working around the world, including in Wall Street. You um, might think that those guys are perfectly well qualified for these you jobs, You would right? think exactly that. And in fact, the, the government has tried to recruit them to that extent. They went, you know, I think back in 2008, after the financial crisis, there was this push to go and poach a bunch of skilled uh, Wall Street executives, uh, you know, from China to come back to China and help develop derivatives markets, um, you know, to come work and, and, and apply what they learned in New York, you know, develop of, of Chinese, China's admittedly backwards uh, stocks, you know, bond markets and, and other things. Um, but it didn't work. Part of the reason, you know, is this for the distrust is the anti-corruption campaign. So and, and that kind of painted a lot of people with a very dirty brush. Uh, the worry was that a lot of these officials would have family um, assets, whatnot, overseas. Um, you know, Yi Gong's wife was rumored, and there's no confirmation there's rumored to have a green card, but certainly his family was in the United States in Indiana while he was a professor for quite a long time. He has deep connections to the state, fluent English and all that stuff. So, you know, a lot of these people were, were given the choice of like, well, you've got to bring your whole family back to China, sell everything you have in exchange for working this bureaucracy um, and take a huge pay cut, right, from the, the private sector. Um, that was one source of frustration. A lot of those people left. The other problem 
was lack of promotion opportunities. And, you know, obviously the debate over Egon kind of focused around that. Like, really, nobody thought this guy was going to go in. There's Guo Xucheng, you know, in the offing. He's this kind of dynamic former governor. He's running the, the China Banking Regulatory Commit Commission, which has now been combined with the insurance regulator. So he's this kind of big head, and he's not going to get it. It's not clear where his career goes from here. Um, Liu He, you know, another guy who studied at Harvard, he's not really considered a, a sea turtle because he went late, but he's Xi's right-hand man. He was just in Washington kind of lobbying um, for requests to end the trade war. You know, Egong was just, I mean, he's never run a Chinese bank. He was kind of this dark horse candidate, and then he's got this kind of stain against him of, like, he's been stained by his overseas experience. So the sea turtles are seen as sort of insufficiently patriotic in some way. They might have kind of imbibed a bit too much kind of dangerous foreign thinking in their time abroad. Exactly, and it's quite strange, really, given the effort that, like, China is going to kind of call for their loyalty and get them to return in like sectors like pharmaceuticals, software, stuff like that. You know, tons of Chinese expatriates in Silicon Valley are being wooed back with these big pay packages, but in these areas of like financial regulation where you would think that, you know, their expertise would be most valued, they have the most trouble. Um, you know, so, and, and you can talk to people today and they still have this attitude. I was speaking to a, a, a fairly prominent Haigui, who I will not name, um, in Beijing just last week. And she was telling me, you know, like, I wouldn't trust people like me. You know, we went to the United States too early and we and, you know, these young people are going and getting all these crazy ideas about how China is terrible and democracy is great. And really what we should be going with is the people like Liu He who went much later in their career and can be trusted. So it's very deep rooted. Uh, but appointing Egong suggests that, uh, you know, things might be changing. And the interesting thing that's changing, of course, is partly the relationship with the United States. Um, you know, it's gone so far south so quickly you really can't afford to have somebody, you know, who's going to scramble that relationship right off the, the bat. And Egong has one big, two good, big things going for him. Um, one is his English and his familiarity with the states, which I guess is two things. But, and the other is that he ran uh, SAFE, the State Administration for Foreign Exchange, and he ran the currency policy for a while. So he's completely familiar with how sensitive the exchange rate is in the states. And he can, you know, be a, a very good outward-facing person. So it looks like a very interesting application of pragmatism rather than principle here. Um, I guess the other interesting question for a global uh, audience is how powerful is the central bank in China? Because we're not talking about a fully independent institution in the same way as a Western central bank, are we, right? So whilst Zhou, the outgoing governor, was seen as quite a powerful figure, formally, actually, the Chinese central bank, the PBOC, doesn't have a great deal of power, does it, in the system? No, in a system, and that's a, that's a great question. I mean, in a system that relies so much on informality and patronage networks, it very, matters very much who is in charge. Um, but I point out a couple things. For one thing, the weakness of the central bank, um, you know, or the influence the central government has over it can be overstated. And, um, you know, a lot of these technical questions you know, uh, the, the technocrats and other bureaus do not get that involved in issues in terms of like how the, the central bank deals with the monetary market, how it controls the exchange rate. These are highly technical questions. They left Joe to deal with it. They'll leave Egong to deal with it just simply because they know how much damage can be done accidentally. Um, but, I mean, they could have put a hack in place. They could have put in somebody who was loyal to Xi Jinping, who's, you know, going to soft pedal on reform. Uh, somebody who's who's completely trustworthy in a political sense, and they did not. So Egong's very important appointment kind of suggests that that Beijing is is at least in this area is still quite willing to listen to to constructive criticism from the the technocrats. 
in addition, I mean, for, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, like there's been this wider, huge reshuffle of the, of the bureaucracy. All parts of the Chinese state, the ministers have been combined, functions have been integrated, overlapping, turf has been eliminated. There's been this massive thing. Um, the central bank does look to have come out on top of that. It's going to have a much louder voice in policymaking um, than some had expected. Um, some had thought that maybe the, the China Banking Regulatory Commission would, would be gradually easing out the central bank under the leadership of Guo Xuqing. That does not look like it's going to happen on paper, at least. Um, but there is an open question. Uh, you know, Igang does not have the connectivity and the, and the networks and the influence that Joe had at the state council and the China's cabinet. You know, if he ends up being a work, weak personality, he could be much more influential overseas than he is in domestic policy. And that's something that everybody should be watching for very carefully. And what would you say, what do you think is at the top of his hit list? What does he need to do? Presumably he's, as you suggest, a kind of continuity candidate because he was perhaps... Joe's favored successor, what will he be worrying about on day one of the job? Well, look, I mean, the primary primary problem in China facing this particular regulator is how to manage the money supply. Um, It's expected to grow, according to the plan, at around 8% next year. Um, Like total credit creation is going to be around 12%. That's still blistering growth for an enormous economy. Um, How do you prevent that money from going into the asset bubbles and the bad debts that are plaguing China? And how do you channel it into these new industries that China wants to build that are productive and are creating jobs and and advancing innovation? Um, That is a problem that, you know, a a conundrum that Joe himself did not really solve. Um, You know, there's still very high debt levels. Um, You know, that is a can that he had to kind of kick down the road a bit. Um, He had the space to do it when the China, the economy was growing at double digits. But as it slows, you know, Igong is going to have a much more difficult time um, hitting the growth targets, providing the money, keeping the currency stable, um, continuing to push on interest rate reforms so the money goes to the right borrowers and not the wrong ones. Um, That's going to be a huge headache. And he might well come to regret (laughs) taking Joe's job in the end. So fascinating times with, of course, uh, new figures at the head of the two biggest economy central banks in the world. We have Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve, and now we have Yi Gang taking over at the PBOC. Pete, thanks very much. My pleasure. Now I'm joined by Alec McFarlane, a columnist for us here in Hong Kong, to discuss the issue of Chinese depository receipts. Now, a lot of excitement in China at the moment about a potential new class of shares, um, the return perhaps of some very big Chinese tech companies to the mainland, the idea that Alibaba and others could list their shares at home. I'm joined by Alec McFarlane to explain what's going on here. Alec, what's the big deal? So China's home to some of the world's uh, biggest and best technology companies, uh, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, but a lot of those have chosen to list in New York and uh, Hong Kong. Uh, there's lots of reasons for this, uh, but big one is the, the, the strict kind of uh, listing requirements back home and the fact that there's arguably uh, a pool of more sophisticated investors in, in New York, there's a bigger pool of liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. So talk me through this new idea. People are talking about CDRs or Chinese depository receipts, sort of by extension, uh, uh, an answer to the American depository receipt. How does that work? That's right. So so basically, they're like, like their kind of American counterparts, they're um, financial instruments that are held by a bank, issued by a bank. So they'd be 
say, for example, Alibaba's US listed shares would be held by a bank and they'd be issued to Chinese domestic investors. You, the, the investors would get the CDRs and the bank would hold on to the underlying securities underneath them. That's interesting. And what do you think might happen if this goes ahead? What consequence does it have for the listing, for, for these listing companies? It has quite a lot of consequences. So, I mean, you know, like a big, a big sort of um, perk, I mean, you could argue for the listed companies themselves is that they've got lots of loyal investors, retail investors, mum and pop investors back, back in China. Uh, say, for example, Alibaba has a lot of loyal customers that also invest. If they buy their shares, they might give them a bit of a premium for the fact that they like Alibaba and they like shopping on the website. So that's a bit of a perk. Um, a bit of a double-edged sword is that also these a lot of these tech companies have kind of fallen out of favor with, with Beijing for listing abroad in the first place. So it kind of lets them, you know, kind of puts them back in Beijing's good books to some extent. Um, you could also argue that uh, a lot of these companies may not have a choice. You know, this might be a kind of a, a bit of a strong arm, arming exercise to, to sort of get them to list back home as well. Yes, that's interesting. So, in, in fact, as we record this, we're in the middle here in China of um, a big political season. There are a couple of big political meetings going on and several of the tech chief executives are representatives to one of these bodies and they've been popping up and saying how excited they are about the chance to list back home and how they'll do it as fast as possible and at least to me i'd love to hear your view that sounds a little bit like something they feel they have to say whether or not that's 100 percent what they believe yeah exactly i mean it's too speculative to tell what's really going on behind the scenes but yeah that that's a conclusion that's been uh you know drawn by a lot of people in the market as well yeah and I guess they already have uh, the Chinese regulators, a lot of levers they can pull in controlling these companies. You know, if you're Tencent, for example, there are already kind of a lot of controls on how WeChat operates and they seemingly share WeChat information with the authorities. However, they would gain an extra lever here, would they not? Because they would now be regulated as securities issues, as securities issuers in China, too. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you 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 could also. I mean, it's it's perhaps too early to tell how much insight the Chinese regulators would have into these companies that they don't already through the issuance of CDRs. But yeah, you could argue that uh, this would bring them closer to the regulators and, and under greater scrutiny by them. And what do you think? What a kind of time frame are we talking about here? And do you have any ideas of who could be good early candidates for this scheme? Yeah, so I mean the 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 big one is is Xiaomi, the the Chinese smartphone maker. So a lot of this talk about uh, Chinese depository receipts has kind of come from speculation that Xiaomi could do a Hong Kong listing, which has been planning from the beginning, as well as a, a kind of mainland China. Uh, listing as well and this could be done through the issuance of, of CDRs so in a way this could be our biggest kind of litmus test of, of how the structure will work and also how these shares will perform as well. And Xiaomi will be an absolutely enormous listing right I think the the whisper numbers that are being bandied around is a hundred billion dollars in market value people are talking about how to value this company whether it's not just a handset maker but also a sort of huge lifestyle brand as well so mm. a big feather in china's cap if that does indeed go for one of these dual listings you talk as well about there being a downside for hong kong so actually where shanghai and shenzhen win hong kong somehow loses out what's the idea there 
Yeah, so I mean, Hong Kong has been, I, I mean, it's introducing this new listing regime where they'll allow uh, technology companies with, with dual class shares to list on its main board. But I mean, all these companies it's lost uh, to, to New York. A lot of them it's trying to kind of lure back through secondary listings. Um, and part of the kind of selling point of doing that is that, you know, uh, if you come to Hong Kong and list, you, you can kind of perhaps take your dual class shares with you. Uh, but also you'll be closer to your home market. And now what China's effectively offering is, um, well, you could be in your home market plus valuation and political perks. And and to be clear, th- the valuation difference that you talked about earlier could be pretty substantial. I mean, I think we were looking recently at the case of Chihu, which is a antivirus company that was trading in New York until a couple of years ago, got taken private by its management and others, reappeared recently in Shanghai, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was trading at 14 times forward earnings when it got privatized, now trading at something like 120 times earnings with a 50 or $60 billion market cap. So, I, you know, theoretically, for some of these companies, I could see a very big upside. I don't know what you think. No, completely. I completely agree. Yeah, like that, that's absolutely. And, and Wuxi is another one that's, that's coming down the pipeline. It's supposed to be in the IPO queue in the Asia and was listed in in New York as well. And the, the valuation expectations for that are significantly higher than they, than they were when it was listed in the States as well. Okay, great. Well, so uh, an interesting time for Chinese tech companies, maybe uh, an unpleasant moment of disintermediation for Hong Kong. Alec McFarlane, thanks very much. Thank you. For our next segment, which is on a related note, we have Jeff Goldfarb, head of Asia, chatting with our Asia technology correspondent, Robin Mack, about the New York listing of iQiyi, a video streaming company which some compare to Netflix or indeed to Hulu. Video streaming is all the rage uh, with everyone focused on Netflix and Hulu and Disney and all of these companies that are spending billions and billions of dollars to create new shows, um, to build new technology. And in the United States, it's mainly to, uh, to disrupt the cable bundles, satellite television um, with with packages that go directly to consumers. But in China, there's a really interesting company called iQiyi, uh, which just filed to go public. It's backed by um, the big internet company Baidu. And uh, Robin Mack, our tech guru here in Hong Kong, um, wrote a column about it. And um, this is kind of an amazing story because it is really... Um, a lot like China's Netflix, but has a lot of different a lot of differences as well. Um, for people who don't know about this company, kind of, why don't we start by just walking through what exactly they are and what they do? Sure, Jeff. So iQiyi is one of three of China's main uh, video streaming platforms. Now, video streaming in China is very different from that in the U.S. because most people they're used to getting things for free. Um, there isn't really competition with cable networks, for example, or there's no HBO equivalent um, in China. So smartphone users and young people, they stream these videos and watch shows, um, and they're not used to paying. And if they do pay, it's you know quite little. Um, it's nowhere near as much as what you would pay for a Netflix subscription, for example. So what is this? So I mean, um, so I mean, so the subscription model is really what Netflix has thrived right. on. They get people to pay uh, nine, ten, eleven dollars a month. I think um, at this stage, um, 
what is Aichi Yeah, getting? so Aichi, their subscription model is just starting to take off. Um, so that's actually quite promising. Um, so they have roughly 50 million paying users, which is it's less than half of what Netflix has, but it's still growing quite quickly. But the other thing that Aichi relies on quite a bit is advertising. Um, so this isn't just, you know, ads popping up when you're watching a show for free. Um, they also have um, their own uh, reality shows that they broadcast live. So one really interesting example is that last summer they, have, uh, they had a really successful uh, singing contest called Rap of China, which is quite similar to the voice or American Idol in the United States. This is it all like hip-hop or rap? Yes, or like? <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. exactly. Um, and so there, so that show actually managed to generate you know, quite a lot of advertising revenue, a lot of sponsorship, merchandising sales. And very interestingly enough, uh, Aichi even said that during the season finale, which they broadcasted live, they sold a 60-second advertising slot to an advertiser um, for almost $7 million, which is quite impressive if you think about it because a Super Bowl ad, for instance, um, costs, you know, $10 million. Right. You know. So this is, this is the real deal. Who, do we know who the advertiser no, was? No, they, okay. they did not say okay. And you didn't watch? <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. I missed You it. should have been watching. <laughs> um, so but we should also note, I guess, on the subscriber levels, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you talked about how they have like $50 million. Um, they're paying less than what a Netflix subscriber is. And it's half as many as, say, Netflix has, but it's also only in China, right? Like, I mean, so Netflix has is operating in dozens of countries with a hundred plus million subscribers. Um, Aichi, how fast are they growing um, that number? Is there... Well, so the fifty million is is quite fast, um, but it's actually quite small compared to their monthly active users, which is over four hundred million. So they don't really need to go out of China to find more paying subscribers. They just need to convince more of their existing user base to pay a little more for things like more premium shows, um, you know, and and less ads, for instance. So there, there really isn't um, a need right now for them to, to start making English language shows or try to expand abroad. So you made the point that the revenue mix is different in the sense mm -hmm. that they have both subscribers and advertisers, which is um, a little bit like more like Hulu, I right. guess, which has various tiers where you can get live television, um, you know, from the networks. You can get there's obviously a, a cheaper version that has advertising, and and it's all a subscription model. But I wonder about on the on the cost basis. Um, all of the, the big discussion in the United States is that all of these companies are spending hand over fist billions of dollars to create their own original programs. Is the, I mean, is that expense problem sort of problem or opportunity, I guess, yes. similar at IG? So this is, yeah, I mean, this is um, a big problem. So IG has never turned a profit. Um, and it's not clear when they ever will. So they are spending, you know, huge sums um, to produce their own shows. Um, and that's probably true for their two other competitors, which are backed by Alibaba and Tencent. So you have these three internet giants, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, that are investing billions of dollars into their shows, um, trying to get users to, to pay more. And um, it's unlikely that all three will become profitable anytime soon. Are they, I mean, can all, they may not become profitable anytime soon, but can they all, can, is there room for three competitors, I guess, is a sort of a question. I mean, I think so. I mean, ICE, I, I think it depends on what kind of shows each platform, um, you know, wants to specialize in. So ICE, their shows are seen as a bit more high quality. 
Um, Tencent is a bit more, there's a lot of sports, a lot of anime, so it's targeting a different demographic. Um, Alibaba's Yuko Tudo is, is also slightly different as well. So I think, you know, there is room for three players, particularly when you don't have, um, you know, competition with cable networks as well. Right. Let's get to a little bit of the financial nitty-gritty in the sense that this com- the whole point of this is that the company's going public. Um, they filed an IPO. They're going to list in New York. Um, how do we think about evaluation? Yeah. I mean, as always, it's difficult when you don't have a profit. Um, yeah, so and with, where, how do we so Right, do we so with Aishi, it's even tougher because not only do you not have a profit, um, it's difficult to make an apples-to-apples comparison with Netflix just because the revenue mix is, is quite different. And Hulu is yes, private, in the sense it's owned by right. a bunch yeah. of big networks. Yeah, but having said that, I mean, Netflix is still probably... Uh, the most logical comparison out there. Um, but the problem is Netflix as well is trading on, you know, a very, very high valuation. So if you apply the same thing, then I think IGE's valuation would be over $30 billion. Right. Um, you know, and obviously you probably would need to discount that, um, you know, just because IGE is still, you know, is still in the early stages. Um, you know, it's growing very quickly, um, but, you know, pretty formidable competition. Um, so it's unclear how, how the valuation, um, you know, will be, will be sort of justified uh, eventually. And how far away do we think? I mean, do you have any sense on the time? They, they filed all their yeah, so um, they filed, documents. Yes, but- uh, so they filed the first prospectus in February. So it should be um, soon now. And I think IFR recently reported that, you know, the valuation could be um, at least $13 billion, which, which see- still seems quite high. Right. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Well, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Jeff Goldfarb, Robin Mack and Alec McFarlane for joining us, as well as you, Pete. Kudos also to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about the show. Join us again next week for another edition.